Good morning, everyone. So when I was younger and I would be staying at a friend's place for their night, you know, often their parents would feed me, you know, at some, at some point. And I remember one particular friend's parents who would never take my post-dinner compliments well at all. And I was trained, you know, as you often are as a young as a youngin, to say thank you after a meal. You know, especially if you're out for dinner at someone else's place, it's very polite to say thank you for the meal once you're finished, regardless, you know, of how you've enjoyed the meal or if it was even any good. But it's important to say thank you. But there was this one parent, and I'll call her, I'll call her Sarah. Um, and she would feed us, and if I were particularly onto it, like at that lunch or dinner time, you know, I might start my complimenting quite early on. You know, I'd have a couple of mouthfuls and I'd say, oh, this is lovely, Sarah. And then I'd try to keep this up through the meal, you know, hopefully not overdoing it and making it seem very patronizing. But, you know, I might later have some salad and I'd say, hmm, this salad is lovely, or something like that. And then regardless, you know, if I'd been doing this complimenting throughout the meal or not. When I got to the end of the meal, I would always make sure that I did a post-dinner thank you or a post-meal thank you. And so I'd say something like, oh, thank you very much for dinner, Sarah. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I feel like that's good. That's polite, you know. My parents would have been pleased that I was saying thank you. But this Sarah, she would never take it well. This one friend's parent would never take my compliments after dinner. To my praise, after the first few bites of a meal, she'd just grunt. To my salad commendation, she might say, yep, okay. And to my post-meal appreciation, more than once I received an whatever. And I was just trying to be polite. But I grew to kind of recognize that this is just what she did. This was just Sarah's way, you know, of responding to any sort of compliments. So it just made me do it all the more enthusiastically. But she would never just take it with a, oh, you're welcome, or that's all right, no worries. It was always a grunt or an eye roll or just a dismissal of some sort. And I started to wonder if maybe this was just her way of kind of being humble, you know, being a bit self-effacing, like, oh, don't look at me, it's just dinner. Sure, it is what it is. I mean, maybe this, way, this was her way of portraying humility, you know, when it came to post-meal compliments. But sometimes, you know, it's just really frustrating when someone won't take your compliment or won't take your thanks. You can keep saying, like, oh, well done, that was lovely, look at you go, you've done so well, thank you so much. And they just keep saying, like, no, whatever, it wasn't me, I don't deserve this, go away, stop talking. And you just never win. But I also know that sometimes, you know, I'm inclined to do the same. In an attempt to be modest or humble, it's very, it's very tempting to try to divert the attention, brush it off, you know, pretend it's nothing. Because, you know, often, oftentimes, I don't like having attention on me, and I say that as I stand here, you know, kind of commanding people's attention on me, but generally, generally I don't like too much attention. And so, you know, it seems like a good option to try and say, like, oh, no, oh, don't look at me, divert the attention, because not only does it divert the attention, but it also can make you seem real humble, which is good. But then sometimes, you know, sometimes I don't mind the attention, and, you know, you kind of like being praised for things. Like, at a friend's party recently, we all did a painting, 
It was like this special event thing. And, you know, my one was the best. I'll say it. And people said, oh, well, Lucy, that looks so good. Yours is the best. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, look at yours. Yours is really good, too. Because I felt like I needed to at least feign modesty or humility in that situation, even though I was fairly confident that mine was, in fact, the best. But this is how we most often interact with this idea of humility or the virtue of humility. Humility for us is often summed up in this play at modesty. It's all self-effacing, trying to brush it off, brush away the attention, or focused on being reluctant to accept things or draw attention to ourselves. We refuse commendation, even when it's deserved sometimes, and we don't admit when we have a special skill or talent just to keep ourselves humble. And Philippians 2, which we're looking at today, it talks about being humble, specifically about how Christ humbled himself at the cross. And that's the humility that we're going to focus on today as a part of this series of journeying to the cross. So we're going to read from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, if you'd like to turn with me now. So starting from verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Let me take you back now, right back to the story of the very beginning that unfolds in the earliest chapters of Genesis the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and then Eve are thoughtfully and carefully created by God. He breathes his own life into them so that they might live, and he gives them dominion or sovereignty or control over the things of the land and takes, asks them to take care of it all. And Adam and Eve, they were content there with each other. It says they were naked, but they felt no shame. And when God had carefully and thoughtfully created Adam and Eve, he had given them the gift of free will. They had agency over their own minds and lives. They could make their own decisions, and the only instruction that God gave them was to not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they didn't, for a while at least. Adam and Eve didn't concern themselves with eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because as far as they were aware, if they did eat from it, they would die. But a crafty serpent slithered along and helped talk them into them. You won't die, he bainted them. In fact, from what I know, if you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. 
I mean, that's pretty good bait. Being offered the chance to be like God. Like God who created this beautiful garden that they lived in. Like God who would walk with them through this garden. Like God who carefully and thoughtfully created them and breathed life into them. Who wouldn't want to be like God? And so Eve and then Adam took the serpent's bait and they ate the fruit that hung from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the very first thing that happened, they noticed that they were naked and they felt ashamed. Adam and Eve risked everything for a chance at being like God. They lived their life in a beautiful garden. They experienced a beautiful relationship with God, and they wanted for nothing. But when the opportunity came for them to have it all, to be like God, when that was wafted before them, their human nature just couldn't resist. The serpent tempted them with all the power that they could ever imagine, and they fell for it. And just like that, their world crumbled around them. Humans have always been greedy. We've always been power-hungry, wanting all the glory. It's a part of our nature. In being given the gift of free will, we have the agency to choose for ourselves. And often, what we choose is ourselves. We choose to strive to have more for us. We choose to strive to be the best for me. We choose to strive to have it all, to be it all, to hold it all. We're driven to choose power and control. It's just so tempting for us. And we always have been because we're just not perfect. I mean, look how it started with Adam and Eve. And then we have these words written in Philippians 2. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. We must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And what was that attitude? That even though he was in fact God, even though he had all of the power, all of the strength, all of the ability of God, he did not think of this equality with God is something so precious that he could never dare to let go of it. The message translation puts it like this. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. So instead, it says, instead Jesus gave up his divine privileges. Though a more accurate translation of this part of verse 7 here is Jesus emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself. Full stop. It doesn't say what he emptied himself of. It just says he emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. Jesus had it all. He was one with God, yet his very being held all the power and the status that one could ever desire. Yet Jesus' attitude was humble. So humble that he emptied himself of his, from his glorious heavenly existence 
into an inglorious earthly existence where people didn't know his name, people didn't respect his position, and people didn't understand the status that he held. In Jesus' day, his society was just everything was about status for them. Status was everything. It was what either carried them through life or stuck them as an outcast in life. And in terms of gaining a high status, which was everyone's goal, being a god, I mean, that did it for you. People literally worshipped gods. And that's what Jesus had. He had this god status. But he emptied himself of that recognizable status and instead took the form of a slave. The position of one who came to serve and was born in human form. And we've already established that naturally humans are far from perfect. Yet Jesus didn't even try to pour himself into a special human form. He was born to a teenage girl who wasn't even married at the time she became pregnant. And his earthly dad was just a carpenter. Jesus emptied himself from a place of glory and status into the form of one no more significant than any other because you could say he was truly humble. Jesus' grasp on humility is so much more profound than ours. Jesus' entrance, his arrival in this earth wasn't a show of humility like we know it. Like, oh, what? No, I'm not a god. What makes you say that? Nah, guys, I'm just a regular person like you. I don't need any credit for anything. Don't pay any attention to me. In fact, Jesus' entrance into this earth was quite the contrast to that. Jesus' entrance into this earth was an announcement of who God is the announcement of the nature of God. Jesus' entrance into earth reinterprets this kind of skewed understanding of humility that we hang on to. The incarnation declares that divine equality with God is not found in a flashy title or in the possession of all the power and the status. Rather, it's found in the sacrificial giving of yourself. Jesus took on human form, not in an attempt to gain praise for lowering himself. Jesus took on human form in order to show humanity, this is God given for you. And as though that weren't enough, as though having God given for us wasn't enough, the passage continues, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. When Jesus was found to be in human form, when God was incarnate, alive on this earth, Jesus dwelled on this earth, he humbled himself further and died a criminal's death on a cross. But we must understand that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't humble in the way that we commonly would understand it to be. That Jesus was just willing to do the dirty work no one else would, not for any praise, of course. Rather, Jesus' death was completely humiliating. Death on a cross degrades and dehumanizes its victim. Jesus' body was stretched out, 
on the cross, stripped of clothing and of dignity, exposed, he hung there, naked and shamed and disgraced. And that's only what we see on the cross. As Jesus was led to the cross, he was whipped and beaten, presented as subhuman, the lowest of the low, before his body was nailed onto that cross as a laughingstock, a joke, a fraud, hung there to be mocked, to be spat out, hung there for it to be made known that this Jesus, he wasn't one of us. He didn't deserve to be one of us. But Paul makes it clear, so clear here in this passage from Philippians 2, which is known as the Christ hymn, that Jesus was in fact one of us. When he appeared in human form, when he took on human likeness, when he became like you and like me, like one of us, Jesus took on death in the cruelest form. Not only did he take it on, though, he chose it. He chose the humiliation of the cross, the degrading nature of it, the dehumanization of it. He chose the torture of the cross, the death of a criminal, even though he was a free man. No one would do that, not ever. No one would make themselves seen doing something so humiliating if they wanted to get anywhere in life. But Jesus would, and Jesus did. Jesus took on the humiliation of the cross in order to condemn this world's value system that privileges some and humiliates others. The cross tells us God is not impressed by your status. He's not partial to any one type of person, no matter what you do. He won't stand our glory-seeking and falsely humble human nature. So on the cross, he took that and he put that to death. As Christ gathered to himself the shame that cripples people on this earth and defeated its power once and for all. We think humility is just not boasting or not putting ourselves in the limelight. But Jesus at the cross, he demonstrates what true humility really is. Jesus boasts in the power of God at the cross, as he is resurrected and as life defeats death. Jesus at the cross, he proclaims the ability of God as shame and humiliation are transformed into worthiness and righteousness. Jesus at the cross, he bursts into the limelight, into the attention of the world as he declares it is finished. Jesus at the cross demonstrates what true humility is as he gives all of himself for all of us. If this Christ hymn ended here with verse 8 that says death on a cross, we would still be in our sins. Jesus would have died and that death would have been it. But we rejoice because we know that God did in fact raise Christ from the dead. And with that, he extended forgiveness and worthiness and righteousness to all who commit themselves to the name of Jesus Christ. 
And the final verses of this Christ hymn celebrate Jesus' humble obedience and his suffering unto death. Verses 9 to 11 say, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you remember from last week, we discussed that the glory that was afforded to Jesus at the cross was not an addition to his character. Rather, the glory he was afforded was the magnification of who God already is. God is just. God is loving. God is powerful. God is wise. And God is compassionate. This is what the cross magnifies. The last word in the story is not he breathed his last. The, the story doesn't finish with Jesus' death. Jesus' humiliation doesn't just end with his death. The last word in the story is Jesus Christ is Lord. In his death, Christ has proclaimed the self-giving nature of God. And in his death, Christ endured the nails being driven through his hands and his feet so that he might redeem God's people, so that he might call them worthy and righteous to be his hands and his feet in truly humble service to others. As we come to the communion table this morning, and yes, we can come up to the communion table this morning now that we're in level one. I'm going to read another passage, and it's from Isaiah 53, and it's known as the suffering servant. So if you want to turn there with me now, or you can just sit quietly and listen. But it's the, it's the whole thing, so starting from verse one. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we would be whole. He was whipped so that we would be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away, no one cared that he died without descendants, 
that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life. And the, God's, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. The suffering servant bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. We are the many that he died for. We are the rebels that he died for. Jesus, our suffering servant, humbled himself, emptied himself, became human to serve us, to bear our sins and to intercede for us, to make a way for us. This is his body, broken for you. And this here is his blood poured out for you. The way that has been made is to walk in his way, to walk in his shoes, to adopt the attitude of the suffering servant, the one who would give it all so that people would truly know their God, their creator, the one who is magnified at the cross. The communion table stands to remind us of the humiliation that is a part of the journey to the cross. Who else would give their body for others? Who else would give their blood for others? None but Jesus. As you come forward to receive communion today, consider the way of the suffering servant. Take a moment to pause and to be grateful for the path that he walked. Then consider where the suffering servant is calling you to walk today as you follow in his way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to this table this morning, this table that reminds us of the gruesome death that you died to take our sins, to take our shame, and to give us life in place of them. Lord Jesus, I pray as we come forward that we would take a moment to say thank you, to rejoice for the path that you walked that meant that we didn't have to. But Jesus, would we also listen carefully to your call? Would we also listen carefully to where you're leading us as we are your hands and feet in this world? Help us to be humble, to walk in your way, to put others before ourselves with all that we have. We thank you, Jesus, for this table. And would we be reminded of what it cost you for us to be here today? Amen.